Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. This is the next episode of Time for Heroes podcast, and this week I've got Peter Hutton, frontman of the farm. We're going to touch on Peter's career, but before we go through all that, we're going to go back to your early life growing up and what yeah. it was like for a young Peter Hutton. Right, yeah. Uh, well, I had, a, I had a great childhood, you know. Uh, also remember, I grew up mainly in the uh, in the sixties, you know, and so it was like Bill Shankly was my messiah, you know. Mm-hmm. I brought up, um, I was brought up by nuns and priests, you know what I mean. So, my mum always said when I was a kid, I used to dress as a priest and give the communion out, but within 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 a few years, uh, by the time I was seven. I was running out of uh, church when they were doing altar boy induction. Right. And uh, I ran out of church and the police come round to the house and said, no one's ever done this before. What, <laughs> what's wrong with your Peter? And I said, well, I think you mentioned seven o'clock mass in the morning. And uh, as soon as I heard seven o'clock mass, I was, I just bombed it off the church. <laughs> and then I had another disappointment with, um, I did a practice confession uh, to a nun. And she mm-hmm. obviously knew me, my voice, you know. Uh, and anyway, a practice confession. He, he said, make things up. So I made a load of things up, you know. He said, I'd been swearing at my uh, parents. I'd, been, I'd tried to burn the school down. And <laughs> just made a load of things up. Uh, fertile imagination. So my mum was a dinner lady in the school. And the nun went to her and said, I'm a bit worried about your piece. <laughs> <laughs> So then I just decided that's it, you know, these are two faced. And there was also another incident. There was a priest, uh, a priest, uh, the main priest, his name was Father Mean at our church. And he said, See that, see that waste ground there, boys. He said, Well, if you if you if you take that all up and we'll plant seeds and in a couple of years, you know, a year or so you can play football on it. So anyway, we did it. Me and my mates done it and then went round to him, knocked on his door and said, when can we start playing footy, father? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. The grass is be- the grass is too beautiful to be playing football on that. I don't want to ruin it. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. So that was, you know, so immediately after incidents like that, I uh, gravitated towards Bill Shankly because I thought he was more honest. You know, and yeah. then um, Mate, I went sorry. to... I, I went to uh, secondary school, which was run by priests, you know, and they were like Salesian priests, Don Bosco priests, you know, and um, basically, uh, basically, you know, they was they were very similar, you know, they were very similar to uh, my early experiences, you know, and uh, uh-huh. I think at the time they they were they were in a school in Bootle, you see, so it was it was regarded as a a rough area, you know, and I think they were trying to. Uh, they, they thought they were missionaries. Mm-hmm. It's the same school Jamie Carragher went to, um, but he went, you know, obviously after me, you know. But it was. You look back on it now, and I think you can appreciate what they were trying to do. But they were very strict disciplinarians, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, you touched on that. You touched on it being. Quite like a rough area. So, what, what was it like? Can I... Well, where where I was from wasn't particularly rough. I I lived in a place called Ainsley Race. 
by Ainsley's Racecourse, mm-hmm. which was just outside Bootle. Uh, but at um, the school um, I went to, we had a choice of going to a girls' school that had just turned comprehensive, and it was taken in boys, or the Salesian. And the Salesian had better footy teams. So that's mm. why we chose the Salesian, really. And the, But it was a baptism of fire at the Salesian because we were brought up in... Um, anyway, the first day in school, I also remember this lad turning around to me and the priest was talking about Genesis and reading from the Bible or something. And I was only 10. Because it wasn't uh, 11 till the September, the end of September. I was 10 when I went into school. And he turned around to me and said, have you ever had sex? I thought, I better rise up here. <laughs> so from that time on but I was I was in the football team you see so I think if you're in the football team you don't you know you tend to get a walkover of people you know yeah growing up obviously football was a big influence coming from Liverpool what sort of what sort of music were you listening to I'd imagine the, the Beatles is up there highly but the first record I always remember buying that I went out to purposely buy, even though it is, you know. I mean, me, I, me, mum and dad had bought you singles for Christmas, like, uh, can we mention it? Uh, the Scaffold, Lily the Pink, you know, that type of thing. But the first record I ever remember wanting to buy was um, a Python Lee Jackson song. Uh-huh. Uh, Rod Stewart as a, um, as a session man. He just he had some success with the faces, so did we released this track called uh, "In a Broken Dream"? I think it was called, right. and it was Rod Stewart singing, and his voice was unbelievable. And I, I want that song, but then when Bowie, you know, when they heard Bowie and uh, Gene Genie and that, it just it was transfixed, you know. And I was always into that style of music, uh, but I'd say then I got into Alex Harvey. Remember, they were a Scottish band, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I went to see them live when I was a kid, you know, because I was obsessed with Alex Harvey. Mm-hmm. Um, then I, some of my mates were like, uh, were sort of like um, listening to Genesis, you know, and more progressive stuff, you know. But I, I mean, I did, I loved Peter Gabriel, but I never really wasn't a massive fan of Genesis. I liked them, but I was more into like uh, Cockney Rebel and and groups like that. And um, Remember um, a group called Family? Do you remember them? No. No, no. But they were, he was like a blues singer, Family. Uh, they, had, yeah. they had big hit singles in the 70s. But I also loved, uh, you know, I love soul music as well. I mean, I just, I loved every style of music apart from uh, really progressive rock, you know. Uh, right. And what was, was your... Parents or the music is is it them? Yeah, my dad was. My dad was like big Frank Sinatra fan, but I always remember my childhood memories were of um, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd go to the club on a Saturday night and they'd come back and uh, they'd always like they'd always buy albums like you know they bought the album of Oliver or South Pacific, you know musicals and that. Yeah. So my dad was a bit. He wasn't into the Beatles. He was. He was more into like, um, you know, he had seventy eight. Was he being? You know, he was buying records in the fifties. You know. Yeah. I always remember he bought us. Uh, me and my sister. He bought us 
uh, a Kinks record album, The right. Respected Man, I think it was called. So that yeah. was on all the time, you know. But my dad used to buy us these uh, Top of the Pops albums, and he, he'd get them. And my the dad had a few of them. You know, and he had a beautiful girl on the front, semi-clad. And yeah. I put it on straight away, and I go, Dad, these aren't the originals. I knew straight away. <laughs> <laughs> this is right. all done by session musicians, really. And uh, but yeah, I mean, I started buying records probably uh, mid seventies, yeah, properly, you know, mid seventies. Uh, I mean, I think when when Ziggy Stardust come out, we had we had a mate who who. Um, his dad wasn't around as much and his mum wasn't around. So we'd go to his and put three guitars just on and listen to it all night, you know, and and drink. We were probably about 14, probably had bottles of cider or something. I don't know, you know, but but that was my, you know, baptism into music. But I never thought of ever getting into music. But mm-hmm. then when we went to the sixth form, uh, one of my mates said, oh, you know, we're starting a band, you know. And uh, he said, we need a bass guitarist. So I reluctantly bought a bass and started trying to play bass, you know. This is becoming a a theme on my podcast. The last, um, I think the last three or four episodes, the the guest has started out with a bass guitar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The the one no one wants to play. Yeah. I had, obviously, as I said to you off mic, we had, I'm editing Damon Manchella for Ocean Colour scene. That's yeah. my next episode. I spoke to Mark Morris for the Blue Tones the other day. Oh, yeah. And he's the same. He started it with a bass guitar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, this group, um, um, it was my mate who's like very dominant figure. And he was he wanted to be the lead singer and the lead guitarist and that. Mm-hmm. So I played bass, but it was... It was <clears throat> The songs he was writing was about, he was just taking the piss off the teachers. It was a bit like, he was a big fan of Neil Innes and Bond's old dog Doobie band and that. Uh-huh. And Monty Python and all that. And so most of his songs were piss, piss takes on the teachers, you know. Right. Uh, so it wasn't a serious band as such, you know, but uh, he left to go to university and we, you know, we parted our ways. And... Um, <clears throat> I didn't really think about being a singer. I just thought, uh, you know, I'll try a bit of bass playing, but I did, no one was teaching me and I wasn't getting, you know, I didn't want to join a band as such. But then when it was one of my mates, remember when they used to shut pubs on a Sunday afternoon in case they lost the first world war or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the licensing hours were shut, you know. So between two and five on a Sunday, uh, my mate had a pub in a place called Mellon which was called the Brutal Arms. I was on a hill and I, I'd stayed in his and he, he said to me, uh, uh, I said, what's that noise there? He said, oh, that's our, that's my, that's our Ollie, his brother. He's got a band. I said, well, let's go and listen to him. So I went in to listen to him. I said, well, where's your singer? He said, oh, we haven't got one. And I said, well, I was on the, I was in the school production of Oliver. I'll have a go. And that's how it started. Yeah. Just by uh, pure chance. If that if I hadn't been there then I probably never would have been a singer, you know. So what was the was there various bands in before before obviously the farm came about? There was a band that site the excitements, is that right? Were you in name or was that 
Yeah, that was the see the people who I went who I sang with that afternoon. David uh-huh. and a band called the Excitements. Right. Uh, but that was an earlier version. So what was happening is I was doing a magazine called The End at the time. Is that your fans? So yeah. So the people in the room thought, oh, Peter's a bit of a scally type of thing, you know. It was just first impressions or whatever. I had short hair, you know. Mm. Two or three of them had longer hair and were trying to be a prog rock band, you know. But there was a couple of people in the band who, you know, who just loved the Ramones and the Clash and groups like that I loved, you know. Um, but so they didn't want to be in a prog rock band as such. So I did a few songs. Uh, Lou Reed, I think they were practicing Lou Reed, waiting for the man and things like that. And a couple of them said, run me up the later on the night and said, Oh, we want to start a band with you as the singer. And I said, Well, what about the Trogs? That's what we call them, like in Liverpool, with the long hair. Like, he said, Oh, they don't want to, they don't want you in the band because you got short hair and. They want to be a different type of band. So that's how we started the farm, really. You know, But they were still called the excitements in the early days, you know, in the early manifestation of that, you know. Mm-hmm. So how did they, just getting back a wee bit, obviously, the, the fanzines, what, what took you into that? Were you you're writing and stuff like that? Were you, were you doing English at school? Were you, was that kind of a keen interest yeah. at that point? I wasn't I wasn't keen on English really as such. I mean, I'd uh, I'd done a few things like poems and that, and uh, I had a fallout with our English teacher. Our English teacher was the cross country uh, he was cross country runner uh, manager. You mm-hmm. know, he wanted me to do cross country, and I fucking hated cross country. You know, yeah. Even though even though if I was running, I would try. But I didn't want to do it, you know. I wanted to play football, you know. And he had a big battle with uh, with me, and I, I got support from my dad over that. Uh, he said, "No, oh, if he wants to play football, let him play football." And, no, no, no. He's in the cross country team, you know, because they had teams of like five. So I was one of the, I was probably the third best in the year at cross country. Right. But I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. He had these fucking big mad, you know, mass runs. At different schools, you know, with there be 500 people in it, and you'd be mm. running through mud, and I didn't like it at all, you know. And uh, anyway, I ended up getting a letter off the doctor saying I couldn't do cross country. <laughs> <laughs> so he fucking hated me, uh, you know. He absolutely hated me. So one one day when we were doing, we had to mark each other's work, you know, your partner and sitting next to you, he said, "Do some creative writing." So I did a bit of a poem, which pr- presumably was an early song, you know, like an idea. And my mate uh, uh, marked it and said, this this is verging on idiocy, you know, this uh, poem. And, and he deliberately read it out to, you know, much, to much hilarity from the, uh, yeah. a lot of laughter from everyone in the class, because it was his way of getting revenge on me, you know. And I always had that influence after that, but it put me off writing a bit. It put me off writing. So, but I started reading quite a bit. Started reading like things like Catch Twenty Two, uh-huh. and um, Catcher in the Rye, and The Godfather, and books like that. You know, the uh, Marlon Brando's autobiography. So I started reading more and more. Um, 
one of me one of me books that affected me most was Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which was about the uh, Native Americans, you know. Uh-huh. And I started reading, I started getting angry. And because I was angry, I always remember it. I was angry, I thought I've got to write something down, but I never got round to it. It was only after John Lennon got shot that I started writing because I was obviously angry about John Lennon getting shot, but also thinking, well, I've got to put something on paper, you know, because even though, you know, <clears throat> you know, we lived in New York, you know, we still felt a big affection for him, you know, and uh, even though he was obviously, we all know he's a flawed character, but you felt he was like part of the family, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. It was like you'd lost something, so that's that's what in that period after got shot in December nineteen eighty, I started writing um, lyrics mainly, you know, mm-hmm. um, and so that was the first time I'd done it, you know, really since the English teacher had ridiculed me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it. Is Liverpool, would you say Liverpool's always been like that? Like, kind of close-knit, like, obviously you said, like, he, like John Lennon felt like one in the family and, and that yeah, happened yeah. because there's been all these kind of, obviously, Hillsborough later on and all that, and yeah. Liverpool does seem to come together. So yeah, I think, it you know, been? it's the, obviously it's the least English city, uh, you know, of uh, of England, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it's got obviously it's got similarities, obviously with Glasgow and 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 places like Dublin, you know. But I think there's a there's a Celtic tradition there of like, um, I wouldn't say melancholy, but you know, there's of of people supporting each other. You know, I mean, it's if you if you look at Liverpool's industrial history, if you look to Manchester, Manchester was organised. They had mills and they had. They had big charters meetings and they had hundreds of thousands of charters meetings and Liverpool wasn't like that. Liverpool mm. was a very different city, even though it was only 30 miles away. You know, um, Liverpool was very different. Chartism never really took off in Liverpool. It right. was like there were communities there, but it was the communities were you know, based upon we, we know what we're doing. And it was very insular in many respects, you know. Of course, it was always a divided city because of sectarianism, you know. So it never really had the the chance to develop trade unionism like Manchester did, you know, because right. Liverpool was a very, even though it might be surprising, but up until the 1960s, it was ruled by the Conservatives. And that was the, um, basically, that was the Conservative and Unionist Party used to run it, you know. Uh, the Labour vote was regarded as like a, a rebellious home rule vote, you know. And uh, mm. it was actually a, think it, about that now, Anna. You, you couldn't you couldn't fathom that these days. No, but in nineteen twenties, the Liverpool Scotland Exchange, which is the dock area of Liverpool, was retaining a home rule Irish MP. Right. Uh, other other areas retaining Protestant. Um, um, councillors and and so basically the Tories ruled the city. Tories ruled the city through sectarianism, right. and um, so Liverpool never really 
even though it was a radical city in many respects, it never had the disciplined trade unionism of other industrial cities. Mm. You know, trying to organise on the docks. Uh, some there was a uh, fellow he's passed away now, but his name is John Gibson, and he had a bookshop in Liverpool called Progressive Books. And he was old, old Communist Party, you know, uh-huh. uh, big white beard, looked like Karl Marx, you know, with a, uh, <laughs> a John Lennon cap on, you know. And he said, "I was sent here in the, uh, I was sent it to Liverpool from Chester in the 1940s or whatever it was, 1950s, to organise the Liverpool Dockers." What a thankless task that was. <laughs> he said, you couldn't organise the Liverpool Dockers. They were all order to themselves. You know, what are they doing? You know, it was like a very, um, you know, it was hard to get everyone unanimous on something, you know, and I think he probably saw a posh Communist Party member coming into the docks, you know, who's this dickhead? You know, and that's what have been the attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, Liverpool got a reputation of being a left-wing city uh, a militant city almost uh, in the 70s and 80s. Before that, it was regarded as a, you know, as a, a really as a, a conservative city. You know, it wasn't until. Yeah. You know, that, you know, I mean, that, that's, I've, I've never heard that before. So that, that's... No, well, you just got to look it up. And um, um, in 1979, when Thatcher was uh, elected, you look at the votes in Liverpool and, you know, they've still got the working class Protestant vote, the Conservative Party, you know, and they're still ruling mm-hmm. the local council. Um, fortunately, that evaporated in the 70s. And when Liverpool got a, a council, a Labour council in the 80s, that's when it started to get its reputation as a, as a radical left-wing city. But before that, it was based upon... Um, uh, the orange and the green, really, you know. That's mental. I mean, before I before I came on this, I was watching um, Jamie Webster at Transmat last year. Oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, I mean, his full stick is um, the fuck the Tories chance. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Ah, it's me- mental to hang. I was watching that just yeah there ago, and then having this conversation with yourself. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think. I think um... You know, obviously, it's a, it's, it's a dirty word in Liverpool Tories. But as I say, in 79, a third of the population was still voting for them, you know. Mental. You know. So, going back to the music then, the start of the farm, <clears throat> what what was the plans when kind of you got into that? Was it, did you, where did you think it was headed? Uh, I wanted to be... I mean, I wanted to be like the Jam and the Clash and that type of group, you know, or even the Specials, you know. They mm-hmm. were my, you know, and I think wanted to re- um, sing about stuff that had, you know, uh, socially aware lyrics, really. I mean, yeah. Liverpool had some fantastic pop anthems, you know, uh, but they all tended to be escapist, you know. And... Uh, you had the groups like the Pale Fountains, China Crisis, uh, um, the Lotus Eaters, you know, Flock of Seagulls. You know, you can name them, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they all seem to be, you know, it was about escapism, you know, not love songs or whatever, you know. 
So my first song I wrote was called Violent Playground. <laughs> that was the first song I wrote. <laughs> um, and obviously that was a film uh, in the 1950s, but I was trying to express something. I don't think we ever recorded it, you know, but, but in the first few recordings we did about 83, uh, I said to the lads in the band, I said, I can't sing these songs that, you know, you, you've written, you know, because they don't mean anything to me. And they were still like, they were like love songs, you know, say you love me and rules of the game and things like that. And they, they were good songs. They were good pop songs. But I said, look, you know, I can't really get behind these, you know, what about this one, you know, and what about this one? And eventually he said, oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I became the lyricist by by default, really, you know. And how did uh, <clears throat> how did the working with Suggs, how did that come about? Where did you kind of... I think, I think we did... Um, we did a John Peel session about 83. And then <clears throat> Peter Powell, who was on Radio 1 at the time, asked John Peel who he'd recommend for, like, unsigned bands. And he recommended us. So we did a session in Birmingham for Peter Powell. And we also went on the Orchard Road show right. on a Friday night. So we're on the Orchard Road show on a Friday night. And Suggs and Chad Smash were on it as well. And we just got on with them, like a house on fire. And uh, I think they saw elements of the farm, of madness in the farm. You know, we're like a group of lads who are all having a bit of a laugh and thinking, what, well, you know, working. What the fuck are we doing here? You know, how, how do we get here? You know. Yeah. And so we, through a third party, offered us a, a chance to go down to a place uh, in London called. Um, Liquidator Studios, mm-hmm. and that was their that was their uh, studio. So he started helping us out, and he liked the song called Hearts and Minds, you know. So we helped us out, and uh, we didn't have to pay for anything, you know. And he, he recorded everything, you know. Right. And then that was released as a bit of a single, but no, you know, indie distribution never really got a few plays on Janice Long and John Peel, as you'd expect, but never really. Troubled the scorers, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> it was all through the eighties. People were helping us out, you know, like uh, Paul Heaton helped us out a lot. Brian yeah. Travis from UB40 helped us out a lot. Uh, I think we saw something. Paul Heaton as well, the House Martins, obviously. Yeah, I uh, think they liked the idea of the farm. You know, mm-hmm. they liked the idea of of us and like Paul Heaton. Did the same as Suggs. He invited us over to Hull. We recorded a couple of tracks, you know, and uh, him and Stan Collymore wanted to sign us to Polydor Records, and it was all getting sorted. Polydor Records, um, <clears throat> there was a A&R, head of A&R was called John Williams. It was all agreed, and we were going to be called, the label was going to be called a Fair Play Committee. After... Right. Um, uh, the Fair Play Committee was set up to get black music onto American radio stations, you know. So we we're going to be called the Fair Play Committee record label, and we were going to be a sign, and we had the deal was all sorted. And then Stan Collymore said he was going to, he wanted to go to the House of Hebrides to write children's books or something. So the House Martin split up, 
and the deal went with it. <laughs> so it was this, these things were happening all the time, you know. <clears throat> At that time, do you, do you think, like, as you say, like you had a lot of help with other people? Was that kind of getting into like the early eighties, and obviously maybe the country moving more left left wing to a certain extent? Do you think that was the ethos was for everybody to kind of help each other and give everybody a leg up? Yeah, I think, yeah, there probably was. I mean, it's significant that the people who were helping us, like Suggs and Brian Travis and Paul Heaton, they were all probably left-leaning, you know. We did play a few times with a group called the Redskins, you know. Um, and, um, you know, but they were like the darlings of the enemy at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they never, they never really helped us out as such, you know. But it's just... All we were doing was like get if we were getting a John Peel session each year, that was keeping us going for a year because of musician union rates, you know. Right. And that's all we were doing, and we couldn't get many gigs. We didn't know we didn't really know how the music industry worked properly, you know. We thought it was a meritocracy. We thought if you were playing live, you're getting good audiences, people would start writing about you in the music press, but it doesn't work like that, you know. You've yeah. got to get a press officer and you've got to put them on a lot of money as a retainer and they've got the links into the, and you've got to get a plugger. You've got to get your plug in your records. Yeah. And it all costs money and we didn't have it. And it's no, it's no change <clears throat> in all these years, has it? No, it's still the same. Still very similar. Yeah. Yeah. I'd yeah. say, yeah. But, uh, you know, we've never really that disillusioned about 1989. We started thinking, oh, we've been going for five, six years now, you know, we're not going to get signed now, you know. Uh, but then we uh, started our own label with a bit of financial help from one of the Moores family. Mm-hmm. It was the Littlewoods Pools. And basically they acted like a record company. Because all record companies are, are banks who are willing to lend you money, you know. That's all they are. Yeah, you know, they haven't got a clue, have they? A lot of these young bands now, they think they've got a record deal, they've got all this money, and then it's, it's not until like a few months later they realise that they, they need to pay it back. They need to... Yeah, and it's also, it's, that's the start of the hard work, you know? Yeah. Because so, um, at that time you, you released um, a cover of The Monkeys, didn't you? Stepping Stone. Yeah. It was during that period, yeah. Um, and like that flew out. We only released it on 12 inch. And then we had a midweek of like 50 something. And everyone was going, oh my God, it could get in the top 40 this. But we had no, we only had 12 inch vinyl. We didn't have CDs and we didn't have tapes and we didn't have seven inch vinyl. So it was a big mistake really, but it's because we weren't expecting it, you know. I remember um, Suggs driving around London with a boot, car boot full of stepping stone 12 inches trying to keep up with demand <laughs> <laughs> and this was before obviously madness reformed you know and he's like oh, i can't fuck it you know every time i go to one record shop there's another one on the phone asking <laughs> them to go there with and it was a real phenomenon that stepping stone you know and that was down to a dj called terry farley in many respects because we had a version of stepping stone uh-huh. but it was a bit faster and he said, try and use this loop, which was the, um, it was an underground record at the time in London. 
and then it was the snap power by the snap to do it you know uh-huh. said, this is the biggest underground record in london at the time he said uh, use that loop slow it down and you know it'll do well and uh, by the time we released stepping stone snap was number one you know uh-huh. we, but no one really associated the two together <laughs> you know <laughs> but yeah. it was a case of we thought People are going, oh, they've just used that drum beat. But I think there was lots of people using that same type of thing at the time, you know. Right. So after that, like the, next, the following year, that's that's when you kind of your, your two big songs came out. Right? Yeah. It was it was unbelievable. It was like a roller coaster because, you know, we'd spent those years like chugging along trying to get to, and then all of a sudden it was just a tidal wave. We couldn't do any wrong. We just couldn't do any wrong. We had um, Kevin Sampson was managing us, and uh, everything he suggested, let's get this press officer, let's get this plugger. Everyone was the right person, you know. Mm-hmm. They were all the right people. And we had uh, Bill Drummond from the KLF ringing us up. Well, who's behind this? Come on, tell me who's behind it. Because yeah. <laughs> he couldn't believe that a, a bunch of like lads from Liverpool could be, you know, releasing records and taking on the majors that's what we were doing we start we we hoped it to be an indie success but you know we were getting market share in music week right and it was just an unbelievable period you know we couldn't do and the music press we were the darlings of the music press you know uh we couldn't do any wrong you know but uh, you could see a lot of them resented us you know especially yeah. uh, especially magazines like the melody maker very very middle class you know and very uh, uh very you know looked down the nose and they couldn't believe what was happening who are these oaks you know it was like i suppose it was a bit like when the backlash against you know jeremy corbyn that he had you know and everyone just piles in yeah the melody maker were waiting for the for their opportunity you know but for i'd say for 18 months two years We'd been on every front cover and we'd done everything. And it was all DIY. It was all punk rock. Mm-hmm. And it never really got the, you know, Alan McGee said to me, he said, we looked at what you did. And he, he said, I want to, I want a group like the farm, you know, and it was Oasis. So they did, they set up a label, uh, licensing deal with Sony, the same way we'd done with the, uh, produce records right and he said ours was the template because he knew the potential he knew the potential i mean <clears throat> you know oasis put it into the mainstream you know cagoules and fucking jeans and cagoules. you know people didn't dress like that in the music industry in the 1980s we yeah. were regarded as like who the fuck are these <laughs> you know <laughs> It was only really the Happy Monday said to us, they saw us on the Oxford Roadshow. Sean Ryder said, I, I, I fucking seen you on the Oxford Roadshow and we were watching it and went, fucking hell, they can do it, we can do it. And it inspired them to do it, you know. Yeah. Um, that whole look, but that look we had throughout the 80s, you know. <clears throat> when it, And we had a front cover of the face, 1990, just before Spartacus come out. 91, sorry just before Spartacus come out. And it was about 
how to succeed in the music industry. It was just a template for what we'd done. Basically, it was just you just need fucking money. That's what it, that's what it was, and good ideas, you know. And that's what it was. That's all record companies are, you know. I mean, they they at the time in that period they didn't know what was going on. It was like punk rock again, because yeah. they were trying to buy white labels up and what's going on. They didn't have a clue because all of these A and R people had missed. They didn't know what was happening. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a revolution to them. Eventually, they bought all the labels up, didn't they? And they yeah. regained a bit of semblance of control, you know. But it was an exciting period, you know. Yeah, so you mentioned the Mondays, obviously. You had to have the Mondays in the Stone Road over in Manchester. Yeah. And yourselves in Liverpool. What, what was what was the what was it like between Manchester and Liverpool and that? Time because I mean that's all the all the bands probably the last thirty years the majority of them come from Manchester and Liverpool. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean the Mondays had come to one of our gigs in Manchester with the Booker hats on mm-hmm. and, uh, and bounced into the dressing room. All right, lads, fucking hell, you know. And, and we <laughs> thought it was a setup. We go, this car, people like Man in Liverpool. Manchester don't act like this. It was like 1986, 87, you know. So we thought it was a setup, you know. We thought they were going to come around for the come to a, for the drink around the corner, you know, and then we'd have a reception committee waiting for us. But they weren't. They were genuine. They were genuinely mad. <laughs> and uh, so we invited them to do a gig in Liverpool in '87, and I've got I've still got the poster where they're supporting the farm, you know. Uh, but um, so there was a bit of cooperation there, but I think they saw us and we saw them as outsiders. Mm-hmm. That's those type of people weren't supposed to be in groups as such, you know. They were in the 60s, but in the 70s and 80s, music become a lot more pretentious, hadn't it? And a lot more you had to have. I always remember <clears throat> record companies and publishers saying to us, Where's your image? You've got no image. Well, this is the image. Can't you see it? <laughs> and then it wasn't until Oasis popularized it that they all the penny dropped for them all, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> no, no, as the standard damage for a, a band, a group of boys, that's that's it. You only need to be wearing those clothes and that. It's men. Yeah, and I think the only other band like that was really uh, flowered up in London. Mm hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I know Primal Scream flirted with it a bit, didn't he? But they were really a rock and roll band, Primal Scream, weren't they? You know? Yeah. <clears throat> so, obviously, number one album. How does that feel? It was like we were, we were a bit blase about it, actually. <laughs> <clears throat> we were a bit like, ah, shrug of the shoulders, you know? I think we'd had so many knockbacks. That we just thought this can't last, <laughs> yeah. so we didn't want to celebrate too much, you know. And of course, it didn't last because um, we went to America with Big Audio Dynamite. That was another person, Mick Jones, who's yeah, absolutely brilliant. Who was so, you know, even though some of the melody maker journalists might not like us, you know, Suggs liked us, Paul Eaton liked us, Mick Jones and Joe Strummer liked us. That's all we wanted, you know. 
Yeah. So he took us on tour to um, America. So we played with Big Audio all around America. And and to to be fair, it was Big Audio we were our peers. That's who we were influenced by, not by the Mondays or the Roses. It was Big Audio. We thought they were like unbelievable, and they were. I don't think they get the credit they deserve, you know, because when Don Letts and Mick were together <clears throat> and the songs they were writing and using samples and spaghetti westerns and drum beats, it was fucking, it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Well, that's <laughs> the thing as well, though, but it's like, maybe people that's like Matt Jones, Paul Heaton, all these guys, if you look back at their careers, their longevity they've had in their careers, Obviously, there's, there's, yeah. there's something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mick, Mick actually wrote a song for us. I think you can get it on Spotify, and it's called "It's Been a Long Time." Right. And he wrote it for us, and he presented us to us at uh, the Royal Court in Liverpool. and said, "Here's a song I've written for you." And we went, oh, what, "What do you mean?" He went, "No, uh, you've inspired me." And that's fucking Mick Jones in the class, and we've inspired them. Fucking else that you know. It was the wrong, do you know what I mean? But it was such a moment, you know. Yeah. Such a moment that we were just, you know, we were just made up, you know. After Spartacus, number one, then you you signed to Sony. And then, yeah, that was the beginning of the downfall, really. So, looking back on that, that, if you had the chance again, would you sign with them or would you? Well, they offered us so much money and like the people we, in produce records in Liverpool, you know, they were, you know, they, they were sort of like, they didn't want us to be successful. Well, I didn't say they didn't want us to be successful. They wanted us to be successful, but as soon as we were, they were like taking the piss out of it, you know. And like, um, like our manager going and go, where are they today? So they're in Dallas and they'd all start laughing, fucking Dallas, they've sold out, you know. <laughs> and it was all that type of stuff. So we thought, they're not helping us out here. They're signing other bands that we didn't particularly like. We thought, well, it's not our record company. Even We should have had a share in the record company. We should have gone 50-50 with them, but they were making all the decisions, you see. Mm-hmm. So I think our manager just said, look, for the longevity of the prod, you know, the, the whole group and all the roadies and that, I think we should sign to Sony. I think on reflection, it was, probably was a mistake, but they offered us a deal we couldn't refuse, really, you know. And that was the template that Alan McGee said he used for uh, for creation, you know. Right. But so, it was the beginning of the end, really, because we, um, we had a press officer called Leicester Dixon, who also did the Rolling Stones and, <clears throat> and uh, Paul McCartney and people like that. And it just didn't suit our image and that. And all the people uh, who were at the LMA and the, and the sounds and places like that who did like us going, oh, they fucking suck. They signed to Sony and they got laced to Dixon. It didn't. Yeah. It that, didn't fit with our image, really, you know. I mean, a few of them, a lot of. We took too much notice, really, of some of the criticisms. You know, a lot of, them, a lot of the journalists were saying, like, oh, they, they look like they've just come off a building site. You know, <laughs> um, it was all anti-working class stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and we took it to heart, really. So what we did in 1992 at Redham Festival, 
we all got dressed up as public enemy because they were all in awe of public enemy. And it's, it seems bizarre now, but we all dressed head to toe in black with sunglasses on and fucking imitation guns. And all the journalists would... And it, was a, it seemed like a good idea when we had a few drinks, but it totally backfired on it. No one got the joke. No one got the joke. They just said... They just, like, pointed and thought, they've fucking lost the plot there. Even Mick Jones is at the gate, as you heard. Fuck it, you know, because we had a police escort in limousines. But we were taking the piss out of the whole concept of you look like bricklayers, you know? Yeah. So and no, no and like maybe we were just too subtle for them, you know. So like obviously you have a number one album and then <clears throat> the music after that not charting. Yeah. How does it feel like how did it feel to be like on the on top of the world and then it's kind of it comes crashing down really to a certain extent? Yeah, well we uh, we we did a track called uh, we did an album called Love Seen Uncle, which I think is there's some good songs on there, you know, and then we did Hullabaloo, which is some great songs on Hullabaloo, you know, but mm-hmm. we just taught we just seen it as these these are the cycles of life, you know. Uh, uh, we were fashionable for two, 18 months. Then grunge came along. And then grunge, all the journalists were happy with grunge because they understood it, you know. Uh-huh. And and every group, like the Stone Roses, the Mondays, everyone, everyone was in the same boat. Yeah. Everyone was in the same boat. Some groups did survive it, like Blair survived it. I think Primus Cream survived it, but that's because, you know, maybe because they were that old London based. I don't know, you know, but I think they were able to to survive that wave of of uh, cynicism. But then Oasis came along, you know, mm-hmm. and Oasis couldn't have existed in 1990 because they, they basically Oasis were a copy of the real people. Uh-huh. And the real people in 1990 tried to release their stuff, and it was getting nowhere because everyone was having remixes, and it was all uh, indie dance culture, you know. So we were philosophical about it. Philosophical yeah. about it, you know. So we had a brilliant so time. Is, so much it is to do with timing, and it. Yeah, yeah. So we, we had the perfect timing in 89, 90, 91. And the real people didn't. You see, the real people to me should have been absolutely massive. Yeah, I'm trying they, to get they, they on the podcast as well. They nurtured Oasis. And they also said to us, you know, Oasis, oh, they love the farm, Oasis, they love the odd image and all that. Can you get them on a few gigs? But we already had that tour support, you know. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't. But uh, that's all about yeah. timing. If, they, if they'd have come, about 93, 94, he could have took off probably because the songs were there. Mm-hmm. And the, the, there's that Liverpool Manchester link again with the, the two yeah. bands as well. 1995, um, you allowed Everton to, to use all, all together now for the FA Cup. Yeah. So, you know, with that being your biggest hat, what was the thinking behind letting your rival team use that? Um, We've done a few things for um, 
for Liverpool. There's three of the band are Liverpool fans and one an Evertonian. And he just started saying payback time. But we <laughs> we didn't actually record it. It was session musicians recorded it. Right. And for like two or three weeks, I said no. Not because it was Everton, but because I didn't want them to change the lyrics. You know. Now, other, other teams had used it before Everton. You know, Everton right. went the first, but other teams had used it. As cup fan, you know, Arsenal had used it. I think a local team here, Marine, had used it. It does lend stuff to that sort of yeah. final sound, in it with the the lyrics. It does. So, um, but in the end, um, uh, Keith was on the phone to me, and he had this lad in the background crying, "Oh, he's going to meet the team," and he said they'd take us to Wembley, and it was just emotional blackmail. Anyway, I said to me dad, "Look." My dad's been a season ticket holder at Anfield since 1962. I said, what do you think? He said, well, if you don't let them use it, you're a bit of a hypocrite, aren't you? Because it's about two enemies coming together in no man's land. Mm-hmm. Oh, fucking hell, you know. But on reflection, I still think it was a, wasn't me best decision, you know. <laughs> but, and the reason I found out was uh, in 2004, when England wanted to use it for Euros, uh-huh. he said, um, believe it or not, we were going to use altogether now for the Euros. Uh, and it would have been the theme for the whole tournament. Uh, but because Everton used it, we got the lightning seeds to write a new one. Now, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we don't, we're not England fans as such, but it would have been the theme tune for the whole Euros, you know. Right. Which would have been fucking brilliant, wouldn't it? You know. Anyway, you live and learn. Yeah. Get, so, but England used it in 2004, didn't they? So, uh... Well, we didn't. We weren't too keen on them using it, actually. Their idea was that Robbie Williams was going to do a cover version of it. For some reason, he wasn't available. Uh, so they, but they were saying we still want to use it because we want to be more inclusive. We want to get rid of the right wing image of England, you know, mm-hmm. uh, no surrender crew. Uh, we want to get rid of that, and so they convinced us on politics, really, you know. But uh, I wouldn't say it was unanimous in the band. Some people thought it was we shouldn't have let them use it, you know. Yeah. But um, it was basically the original with a bit of commentary over it, <laughs> so we didn't have to do much. But um, England fans didn't like it because it was about coming together with the Germans, wasn't it? You know? Yeah, it's it's no there. It's it's no sending the right message for the the fan so base. Not the uh, the German bomber crew, no. <laughs> the association with Liverpool as well. The Spirit of Shankly was formed in two thousand and eight. Yeah, right. Which you're a big. Part of that as well. Yeah. Were you a founding member of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was the reason behind that? Was this the American owners coming in? Yeah, um, it was like the the future of the club, really, you know. Uh, we were being we were we were being told by people at the hierarchy of the club, you know, people like Rafa Benitez and that was telling journalists that we knew how serious it was, you know. That, the, um, that he'd done exactly what they said they wouldn't do 
and basically copied the glazers and uh, a leveraged buyout. Mm-hmm. You know? So they were having to pay uh, for the money they'd lent to buy the club. It was all intricate paperwork, you know. But basically, the club was in debt, and they had to save us this debt every year from income to the club, you know. So it was in jeopardy, the club, you know, it definitely was like so. That's how it started, you know. And uh, it, be, you know, it, we soon got onto the streets, and it was a very successful campaign, you know. And the SOS is still going now, you know. Yeah, it's one of these things, isn't it? Once once you get involved in something like that, there's there's always another issue coming down the yeah, line. It's hard to break away. Yeah, it's hard yeah, to break yeah, away. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago with the all the Super League stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which the fans, the fans, you know, all these teams done really well to kind of get rid of that, but we seem to be threatened now with this kind of Saudi mm. takeover. They just want yeah. to buy up all these players. I mean, obviously, me as a Celtic fan, lost one of our best players just just um, a couple of days yeah. ago. And Ridiculous. Where do, where do you see this headed? Uh, it's hard to say because, you know, they, they tried it in America, didn't they, in the 70s? And they tried it with the J-League, but I think something about Saudi Arabia is a bit different, isn't it? Because just, they have, because they know the oil's running out. So they want to become this tourist attraction. And the way to do that is to buy boxing. They bought boxing, golf, Formula One, and mm-hmm. football's on the horizon, you know, and it's going to be very difficult. I mean, I'm I'm disappointed with some of our people associated with our club who've gone over it. But, um, you know, I felt I felt for like Rory McIlroy when he was like dead against it, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, and then he's just thrown to the wolves, wasn't he? Because he did the deal, you know. And I think at the end of the day, that's the problem, isn't it? Money talks. But, you know, hopefully for the future of football, it falls on its face, you know. Yeah. Because I don't think. I mean, but then again, Saudi Arabia has got. He beat Argentina, didn't he? Mm-hmm. They have. They have got a bit of a football culture there, you know. They have got a few teams, but I just don't. I just don't want it to be uh, a plaything for the for the sheiks, you know. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's where it where it ends up. Like, are we going to be? Are they going to be taking all these players? Are they going to be? Are we going to be watching football at four o'clock in the morning? Are there going to be some rival yeah. Champions League? It's, it, it throws up so many questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, obviously the boy, the, the Jota at Celtic, he's he went there. He's only twenty-four year old. So ridiculous. You know, you're looking at usually when 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 the players went to America back in the day, and even like when China were signing all these players. Yeah. Yeah, at the end of the career, yeah. Yeah. Well, Neves went, didn't he, as well? So, I mean, Mane and Firmino have gone, haven't they? You know, yeah. you can understand that their end of the career, but, you know, you know, it's it's one of them, isn't it? I mean, I wouldn't, you know. We were offered uh, Qatar. We were offered, you know, Qatar wanted to use, or, or one, uh, one of the sponsors who were in Qatar wanted to use all together now. And we uh, we knocked it back because I mean some things are more important, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, and that's. Uh, but I mean, uh, like trying to tell that to these 
players when they're young boys and they, they yeah they're not it's just you know i mean yeah. I, we we did a gig in dubai and we we didn't like it there either you know yeah i'd imagine there'd be a lot of soul searching and it, mm. it would leave a kind of better taste in your mouth i would imagine doing something yeah. you know if if you don't fully commit to it mm. along with that you've like the spirit of shankly you've done a lot of stuff the don't buy the sun gig, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of political stuff. Working with again with, with that you were working with Matt Jones, and John yeah. Power, Pete Wiley. You, you've worked with him before as well. See when I initially when this interview came up, I done a bit of research. Uh, I was halfway through the research and I, I realised I was researching the wrong guy. I was researching Pete Wiley. And <laughs> yourself the two Peters for Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. So, working with these guys on the Don't Buy the Sun gig, how, how did that come about? And yeah, it was during the um, the phone hacking scandal and the news of the world went out of business, didn't he? And we, ju- I just thought at the time, you know, we've got to, we can get the sun here and get them, and t- you know, in the uh, in in our sites, and we can have a campaign against them because there'd been a big campaign in Liverpool anyway. Yeah, but we just brought it together, you know. But then that turned into the uh, uh, Hill Hillsborough Justice Tonight uh, tour, uh-huh. you know, and it was raising awareness for Hillsborough. You see, because at the time the reports hadn't come out, you know, so no one knew. It was still like. The ignorance in the country was still, you know, was rife really in about Hillsborough, you know, and um, it was to raise awareness for people, to, you know, for that, you know, Mick was unbelievable and everywhere. It was like the Pied Piper, you know, and uh, we got a few politicians involved, different groups, and we played in Glasgow, the ABC, it was burnt down man, a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had Las Vegas on. So wherever we went, like, we get someone from that area to play, mm-hmm. and it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It was it was inspiring, you know. It felt a bit like the eighties in many way, in many respects. Yeah, but, um, that's it. In these times, when you need <clears throat> a bit of bands to highlight stuff, it's it's this is a perfect way to do it, isn't it? With musicians, obviously, I I seen Justice Tonight band at Heaton Park. He's playing oh, yeah. the Roses. So I was down there for the third night of that. Um, On the Sunday, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, a gig like that, that that's like massive for you, isn't it? Yeah, Which, unbelievable. Uh, unbelievable. The Stone Roses were absolutely brilliant yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, I've seen them three times. I've seen them Heaton Park and I've seen them Glasgow Green and Hamden, but Heaton Park was the best by a mile. Mm. Mm. And it was just everything about that gig, like looking around. You go to these gigs now, you go to a lot of these big gigs and there's always bother, there's always people fighting and all that. But yeah, yeah. looking around that gig, you just looked at everybody's faces, everybody was just smiling, everybody was so yeah. happy to have that fantastic. And they took us to Dublin and Milan and Leon. They were absolutely fantastic. And, you know, they believed in it. They believed in it. Oh, yeah. they were great. You say, uh, brought out another single, obviously, the Justice Collective um, 
Christmas oh, number, yeah. Christmas number one. He and uh, yeah. well, the reason I bring that up, that's I don't know. I don't know why that song st- strikes a chord for me. As a young boy, I was born in 1980, and I don't know. I don't know when the original came out. I don't know if it was around about the 80s or whether it was a reload. Aye. So I, I don't know if it's just my dad just to play it, but that song strikes a chord for me throughout my childhood. I remember that yeah. song. I remember Bruce Lee, and I put them together for some reason. Um, so for you to bring that song out as a at Christmas, that that was perfect for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, it was. A, it's a brilliant song, and you know the people who got behind it was you know it was fantastic. Guy Chambers uh, yeah. produced it, and you know it was it was one of those. It was like another a time again. You know it was like uh, it was to, to raise awareness as well. And what I wanted, I said when it was released, you know, was uh, the last thing, you know, um, when the Queen's, before the Queen's speech would be mm. a Hillsborough, you know. But by that time, Christmas 2012, the Independent Panel Report had come out in the September. So there was a lot more awareness by then, you know. Uh, and that's why it probably did so well, you know. Yeah. And I mean, Right about then as well, you're up against all the X Factor singles and all that. Well, they were all they're all planned earlier in the year. Yeah, we only had the idea in October. You know. Yeah, because I mean, people are getting sick of stuff like that anyway, and something real. They want something that means something, not just. Yeah, it was people power, really. It was was people power. Great. Yeah. And only people power as well. Jeremy Corbyn, obviously, you you do a lot of support for him. Sixteen mm. trying to get him into to power. Twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen, the, the elections. You touched on it earlier about how the kind of media. Yeah, you stitched up my him. I mean, he was obviously worried. Yeah, he was obviously worried that he would actually carry out some of his. Uh, of his policies, you know. Yeah, but to make up like lies, man, it was like the stuff that they were doing, it was just like lies and smears against the guy. Yeah. And look what they ended up with in, in his place, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the. I don't know how you describe the difference between Boris Johnson and no. Jeremy Corbyn. It's mental. Yeah, yeah. Well, people were. Um, a lot of people, the Red Wall, you know, they were, you know, the Sun Readers, aren't they? Yeah. You know, and they're like, the one thing about Liverpool is the sun isn't readier, you know, I think, and that means that you've got more of a progressive working class, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. And not mean, just the only reason, but one of them, you know. I, I, I couldn't even fathom. Like buying the sun, I, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I don't, I don't buy any newspapers, and I, I, I can't remember the last time I did buy a newspaper. The way people consume media now is completely different from it was twenty, thirty years ago. Yeah. But we're still ending up with the same kind of problems. So, where, where do you see that going in the future? You think we'll we'll push more to the 
I think I think um, you know I've got a lot of uh, confidence in young people. You know, and I think because they don't buy papers, they don't dial it by the Daily Mail or the Express or the Sun. Eventually, you know, that influence will wane a bit. I think it's going to be a while. You know, it's going to be a while. Yeah. Well, I think I think inevitably, you know, you get you know young people are more politically aware. I think, you know, about the environment, especially. You know, I think. Uh, it's progressive, you know, and there was, I think, political party. I think a lot of a lot of community politics have come into it because a lot of the way the working class are organising now is through community politics because they've been let down by the established parties, you know. Yeah. And um, that will, you know, that will change things. And you can see in, in Europe a lot of political parties can rise from nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. I think... You tend to get more of that, you know. I think um, yeah. it's definitely you definitely need to have faith in the youth to just forward, don't we? It's, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. what's going on then with the the farm? Obviously, you, you do a lot of festival shows. Is yeah. that, that is that just the model now going forward? Is yeah, just doing festivals, you know. But we are going to release stuff, new stuff onto Spotify, hopefully soon. Right. Um, just as a way of getting our new tracks that we've had for a few years, you know, but we've never done anything with them, but we're going to hopefully do that. And we do most weekends are out at festivals. Uh, we're doing Rewind, aren't we, in Scotland? Right. I think my big sister's got tickets for it, to be fair, I uh, think. Because it was her, my big sister's the right age for the farm. I was obviously, I came into things maybe a younger. Right, so... Obviously, the podcast called Time for Heroes. At yeah. The end, at, the, at the end, I asked my guests to pick okay. four heroes to come for dinner. Why are they your heroes? They can be for any walk of life you want. They can be musicians. They can be politicians, footballers, whoever you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, why are they your heroes? And and all the next question would be, what would you cook them as well? What would I cook them? Yeah. So I okay. take it away with that. Um, let's see. Uh, it'd have to be Bill Shankly. You'd be one of them. Um, I'd say maybe Lennon McCartney mm-hmm. as well. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Nelson Mandela. Brilliant. Brilliant. I don't think he's ever... Not many females in that group, is there? No. That's the thing, though. You, you, people get, you get put under so much pressure if you've not got the, the right um, people for certain walks of life nowadays. You, you need to have... You need to tick all the boxes, but um, Nelson Mandela's never been picked. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's never been picked. Oh, right. After the episode, Danny, he's, he's never been picked. So that's a that's a good one. On the Bill Shankly, obviously, have you seen the the documentary Three Kings? Shankly Buzz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant documentary. Brilliant, yeah, brilliant. Why do you think? How do you think that's came about for three guys to come for the same area to 
control British football for so long. Just, just I think, you know, just the social conditions they were probably brought up in, you know, and the, mm. the fact that it was escapism, wasn't it? Yeah. You and know, then, work down the mines or play football, you know. And then obviously following that, you, Alex Ferguson came after yeah. that. You know, again, for the same kind of ethos as, as those yeah. And you look at the modern day manager now, and there's there's no many of these type of guys. No, there's not. But I think I think Klopp's quite near to it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he is. I think yeah. it's about understanding the fan base as well, isn't it? And I, I think Klopp <clears throat> seems to be at one with the the fan base. Mm. He's got a good, as we touched on earlier, about Jamie Webster as well. He seems to have a good relationship with him, and yeah. that he seems to get quite a bit. Yeah, of, yeah. Batting for Liverpool. Where do yeah. you where do you see him going as an artist in the future? Jamie. Yeah, I think he's gonna be absolutely massive. You know, he just played two two days at the pay ahead. Yeah. Twenty five thousand people. He he's gonna be absolutely massive, you know. And um you know, I think Billy Bragg's took him under his wing, I think, a little bit, isn't he? Has he? Yeah, Has I he? think so, yeah. There's another one that I went on the podcast as well. Another probably, I guess, Billy Bragg. Mm. To get him. But I absolute um, pleasure having you on the day. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah. Um, you haven't, you haven't, I haven't told you what I cooked them. Oh, I, I, sorry, sorry. I'm, I'm trying to rush you there. Sorry. Uh, as uh, I cooked them, uh, I cooked them scouse. I know. Which, I, I, which is more or less out of stew. Yeah, I had a boy on. I had a boy, Billy Vitch. He's a he runs New Sound Generation. It's like an online music magazine down there, down in Liverpool, and that's what he picks, guys. Yeah. Well aware of what it is now. It's yeah. like it's like the it's like stovies up here. You know what that is. Um, yeah. I so absolute pleasure having you on though. Yeah, pleasure. Yeah. yeah. You want to let the guests know if there's anywhere where they can contact you if they Yeah, I mean we've got our Facebook account and Twitter accounts. Uh, I think we've got one called Threads now as well. Don't know right. how long that's gonna last, but we've got a website as well, uh, music.co.uk, you know. So yeah. Um, that's brilliant. Yeah. I'll post all these links in the, the description yeah. and then right. But I absolute pleasure having you on the day, Peter. It's been a pleasure doing it, yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure doing it. As you can hear, my voice is going a bit, yeah, going a bit hoarse. So I'll have to the, take it easy. Got a gig tomorrow. Oh well, good luck with that. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Cool, mate. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes Podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.